I'll start by uh, telling you about an experiment conducted by a team of clinical psychologists, uh, as uh, reported by social researcher Dan Arely. Listen to what he says. In a series of three experiments, participants were given a chance to claim unearned money at the expense of the researchers. Uh, there were two conditions in each experiment, and the only difference between them was in the wording of the instructions. The, in the first condition, participants were told that researchers were interested in, quote, how common cheating is on college campuses, while in the second, they wondered how common cheaters are on college campuses. This is a subtle, but as it turned out, significant difference. Participants in the cheating condition claimed significantly more cash than those in the cheater condition, who did not cheat at all. This was true in both face-to-face -face and online interactions, indicating that relative anonymity cannot displace the implications of self-identifying as a cheater. People may allow themselves to cheat sometimes, but not if it involves identifying themselves as cheaters. Isn't that interesting? Most people, at least under conditions of an experiment, are okay with a bit of cheating. It's okay to steal a little bit. But can't stand, like zero can't stand, the idea of being a... What do you think is going on there? Well, the answer seems to be in the identifying label, cheater. The, the to get away with a little cheating if they can, so long as that isn't what characterises them as a person. But, but we can press in a little bit further. Why is it that it matters to people not to be a cheater? It matters because everyone knows that cheaters are bad people. Everyone might cheat a little bit from time to time, and of course that doesn't make me a cheater. Because we don't like cheaters. There is a social stigma associated with being a cheater. And what this experiment illustrates for us is that powerful uh, force that is below the surface, I think, uh, uh, for so many of us, uh, and in our culture at the moment, which is shame. Shame has to do with how others perceive us and how we perceive others and how we treat one another based on those perceptions. Shame involves making judgments about what kind of person someone is and then publicly labelling that person. You see this at uh, political protests and in media headlines, we cry, shame, as we point our collective finger at the grubby politician or the cheating sports star or the sex offender or the racist. And once that collective judgment has been passed, the shamed person is then identified and excluded. Maybe you've experienced public shaming yourself. You, you've been found cutting corners at work or a compromising video of you has been shared on social media. Social media, after all, is that great shaming vehicle. But shame has a private aspect as well. There are things about us that can make us feel ashamed. That habit that you can't kick. That one big mistake that you made all those years ago. Those thoughts that you have sometimes that make you shudder, even though they really are your thoughts. That can't be who I am, you say. And yet it is. 
We can be shamed and we can feel ourselves ashamed. And of course, those two parts to shame are linked. The reason we feel shame at those secret things is in part because we can sense how other people would respond if they knew. What if everyone knew about that habit that I have? What if that big mistake got found out? What if I accidentally said that dark thought out loud? What would they think of me? What would they say about me? Shame, you see, both the external and the internal sort is always public in that sense. And so we'll do almost anything to avoid shame. So much of our lives, actually, are spent navigating around avoiding shame. And at the same time, of course, we love it. We love it when someone else's shame is called out. That, I think, is what the nightly news has become, in essence. Identifying all the bad, shameful people in the world. Because what it perfectly convinces you of is that you're not one of them. You're a good person. They're shameful. I'm all right. And, and one word for that feeling, I'm all right, is the word righteousness. It's just what it means. I'm all right. Righteousness. And we have a mechanism that when other people are shamed, that builds up our own righteousness. Romans 10 shows us that these two things, shame and righteousness, uh, which we can see at work in our society and in, in that kind of public context of uh, of social media and so on, that, that, that intuition is not a mistake. Shame and righteousness are linked to each other. We see it in Romans 10. They're, they're linked by being opposites. And Paul continues in this chapter to unpack his basic question, does Israel's failure to put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah mean that God's word of promise to Israel has failed? It's, it's a question that was powerful and pressing and tragic for Paul. I suspect less so for us. But what he says in addressing that question is incredibly significant for us. As he does in chapter 9, he makes his case by walking through Israel's history with God, weaving Old Testament quotations uh, into his argument chapter 10. This is a massive chapter. We, you know, I could, we could be here for months, but we're not going to be. And so we're going to skate a little bit across the surface. But of all the verses that are quoted in this passage, there's one that gets quoted twice, which is Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16. First at the end of chapter 9, in verse 33, do you see what he says? Whoever believes in him, Jesus, will not be put to shame. And then it's quoted again, right in the heart of his argument, chapter 10, verse 11, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. Twice we're told. You want to know the antidote to shame? It's here. It's the righteousness that opposite to shame that comes from, I'm going to say, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in whom we put our faith, our trust. You can only be truly righteous. There is a way to be truly righteous, to overcome your shame, and it's in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at it three headings, seeking righteousness, finding righteousness and living righteousness. So first then, seeking righteousness. 
Uh, Israel, says Paul, has gotten lost. They've been looking at the map of God's purposes the wrong way up and they've taken a wrong turn. They've been striving for the righteousness of the law, the Torah. And yet the Apostle says they've failed to attain it because they've misunderstood what the law was all about and where it was all heading. It's, it's, a, it's a case of, you remember uh, Get Smart? They missed it by that much. They're so close. But they've missed the mark. You see how Paul puts it in chapter 10, verse 2. I can testify that they have a zeal for God. But it is not enlightened. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they've not submitted to God's righteousness. Right there in the middle of verse 3 is that little phrase that sums up the problem that Paul sees for Israel, the problem that's actually in all of us seeking to establish their own righteousness. Remember, righteousness is just the opposite of shame. Israel's been trying to avoid shame, to make themselves righteous, to put themselves in the right, and their method was to use the law that God gave them. And for it to kind of function as a label. They're not cheaters. We have the law, the Torah. We live the law, the Torah. That's what shows that you're not a shameful people. That's what makes us righteous. We're law people. We're Torah people. Now, it's important to get a sense of what that looked and felt like. Um, Take some time, um, when you've got a bit of space, to read the first five books of the Bible, including the really, really hard bits, you know, Leviticus and Numbers. Read the Torah. The 613 commandments and prohibitions that governed every bit of life public, private, marriage, neighbours, financial, dietary, every minute of every day, the Torah had something to say to you. What you wore, how you slept, what you said, how you prayed, hourly, daily, weekly, monthly, annual rhythms. And of course, you can see what that does for you when you live that Torah, including making the sacrifices for when you do it badly. It meant that every minute of every day, you knew visibly and viscerally that you were a Torah person. You're a God person. You are visibly, fundamentally different from all the rest of the world. And you're righteous. Now, can you, can you imagine living in that and growing up in that and for that just being part of the, the fabric of your soul? Because what's pretty obvious about it is that the flip side becomes true as well, doesn't it? The Gentiles, the non-Jews, who are ignorant of the law and don't follow the law, they're not Torah people and therefore that means that they're not God people either. You're a God person. They're shameful. In fact, Jews often referred to non-Jews simply as the lawless, the Torahless. Shame on them. They're disgusting. But we're righteous. We're okay. Now, do you see the, the kind of dreadful, ironic paradox of this? Because 
inevitably using the law like that actually ends up compromising the very heart of the law. This, this, is, this is what Paul says, this is what's happened. It turns you almost inevitably into a self-righteous person, a judgmental person, a person who boosts oneself by putting others down. That is, it breaches the heart of the law, the heart of the Old Testament. Go and read the Torah again, because the heart of it is just the same as in the New Testament. It's the law of love. The law of love. Love for all people. Which is why, as Paul continues in the argument, we won't get to it until next year, uh, but if you're reading the letter like it was meant to be read all in one go, you'll find out in chapter 13 that Paul says, love is the fulfilling of the law. That's what the law is about. If you use the Torah to boost yourself by putting others down, you've actually shredded the heart of the Torah. And establishing your own righteousness always decimates love. It always does. Now, Paul has been um, hinting in Romans all along that the problem that the Jews are experiencing here is just their version of the universal problem of establishing your own righteousness of sin. It's just what sin is. Everyone is seeking to establish their own righteousness. Everyone has their version of avoiding shame and being okay. For the, the Gentiles, including the Gentile Christians who make up most of the readers of Paul's letter to the Romans, um, what defined righteousness and shame weren't law and lawlessness, Torah and Torahlessness, but power and weakness. In ancient Rome, the basic premise was might is right. And so the weak were publicly shamed, the powerful were lifted up. Righteousness was established by showing your power or by finding favour with the powerful. And so it's almost no surprise that the Gentile Christians in Rome were looking down on their Jewish Christian sisters and brothers. Hadn't Israel proved too weak to even recognise their own Messiah? Hadn't the God of all power and might now turned his favour to the Gentiles instead? Shame on them, they were saying. But we're okay. Now, of course, we have our own version of shame and righteousness in our culture, uh, don't you think? Um, in fact, some commentators suggest that modern Western culture is seeing a significant shift from a guilt culture to a shame culture. Now, it's tolerance that means righteousness. And intolerance, well, that's the ultimate shame. If we just say the right kinds of things in the right kinds of company, if we nod approvingly when the right opinions are expressed, oh, we're righteous. But when the wrong things are said, or even if the right things are said by the wrong people in the wrong way, then our job is to, you know, you know what the, nice, the modern nice term for shaming, publicly shaming other people is? It's call them out. That's what we do. We call them out. So that everyone knows exactly who the bad people are and that does what for us? It makes me feel righteous because I'm not one of them, those racists, those sexual predators. Shame on them. But I'm okay. Now, there's always a fear lurking just beneath the surface of this kind of righteousness, don't you think, when you're trying to establish your own righteousness? And the reason is that in a, in a world where this one-up, one-down, shaming of the unrighteous, competitiveness thing is going on, 
we're all of us just one little mistake away from shame at every moment. And increasingly, the pressure is on not to say what you think or feel out loud other than to hit the like on the thing that everyone else is hitting like on. Because you might get publicly shamed if you do the wrong thing. Seeking to establish one's own righteousness is the thing everyone does, but righteousness like that is so precarious, it can be lost at any moment. Shame can lie just around the corner. With Jewish righteousness of the Torah has this same dynamic about it and the Roman righteousness of power has this same dynamic about it and our righteousness of tolerance has this same dynamic about it. It, it, it's, It's fragile, it inevitably leads to lovelessness. Where can there be a righteousness that works? Point two, finding righteousness. Israel, poor whites, are passionate about God, but they're unenlightened. They don't get it. They're ignorant of the righteousness of God, and so they fail to submit themselves to it. And Paul explains this uh, in a really important verse. This is kind of the, the, the centerpiece of the whole section in chapter 10, verse 4. He says, For, you can tell that's, this is an explanation, because for Christ is the end of the Torah, the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Now, it's important to make sure we get what Paul's saying here. Um, Jesus is related to the law by being the end of the law. End doesn't quite mean termination here. Sometimes we use the word end in that way. The government put an end to the uprising, terminated it. But that's, that's not quite what Paul has in mind here. Here it means something more like goal. We use the word end like that too. We ask, to what end? when we're asking about the purpose of something. Uh, you, you can be driving from Sydney to Perth and uh, your car breaks down in Adelaide. Well, I guess your journey has been terminated, but that's not the purpose of the journey, is it? To get you know, stuck in Adelaide, who'd want that? The, the telos, the, the end of the journey is Perth. That's when you've reached your goal. And that's what's being said about Christ and the law here in Jesus, the law has reached its goal, it's achieved its purpose. And notice what happens when that law reaches its goal in Jesus. There's righteousness for everyone who believes. You see, the righteousness that you establish for yourself is always at the expense of others. It's always, it's not for everyone, it's just for the in-group. It always comes by acknowledging and putting down others as unrighteous to make yourself righteous. But the righteousness that comes in Jesus Christ is for everyone. He's the one and only source of true righteousness. So that no one who believes in him will be put to shame. Now the word at the end of verse 3, believe, is is just the same word as the word faith, and actually a better English word is probably the word trust. This righteousness that's found in Jesus Christ, that overcomes our shame, comes for those who trust in Jesus. And Paul goes on to explain 
why that righteousness is open to everyone in verses 5 to 13. He begins by contrasting that which comes from the law, the righteousness of the law, with the righteousness that comes from the faithfulness of Jesus Christ into which we put our trust. And of course, the thing that makes trust powerful is its object. There's no point trusting something that can't deliver, as anyone who's had their trust broken in a major way will be able to tell you. And here, the trust that brings true righteousness, that can break through shame, is when trust is placed in the Messiah, Jesus, who was raised from the dead. The Apostle says, the ultimate sign of shame overcome. This trust is, got, has got two aspects. It's on your lips and it's in your heart. You see how the Apostle puts that? It's on your lips and it's in your heart. It's in your heart in the sense that it's not an outward observance like the righteousness from the law that Moses spoke about. It can't be seen in that way. Instead, it's deeper. It's something in the very core of your being. The righteous person trusts that God raised Jesus from the dead and that's what gives purpose and life and power to everything that they do. And at the same time, the fact that it's in the heart means uh, that it can't be stolen away. It can't be taken away from you. It can't be called out, publicly shamed, according to the labels of any culture. Not Jewish law-keeping, not Roman power, not contemporary tolerance. But secondly, it's also on your lips. It's still public in that sense. The righteous person will confess with their lips that Jesus is Lord. But just as trust from the heart can't be stolen away or called out by uh, any of the particular labels of any culture, this confession of Jesus Christ as the Lord also cuts across every culture. There's one Lord. The same Lord is the Lord of all. There's an echo of the great Jewish confession of faith, which every person said morning and night when they got up and when they went to bed, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. The Lord our God. There's one God. He's the same God of everyone. You see how the Apostle puts it? No one who believes in him will be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 11, verse 12, verse 13. No one. No distinction. Everyone. That the righteousness of God contrasts with and undermines every other kind of righteousness which depends on putting others down. Any other kind of righteousness will say, shame on you, but I'm okay. But the righteousness of God says, none of you can establish your own righteousness it doesn't work. It will never work. It can only be received as a gift, received in trust. And that means it's available to absolutely everyone. And so here's a little exercise uh, to, to sort of access your own resting in this righteousness that comes as a gift from God. Um, ask yourself, how often do I shame others? either with my lips or actually much, much more common, much more frequently in our hearts. How often do you ascribe to others shamefulness that they're bad people? 
Because what's going on there? You need to know the dynamic of your own heart that's taking place there. What's, that's a need in you. To shame others to make you feel better about yourself. That's just what the Apostle's talking about here, seeking to establish one's own righteousness. Because when you've found the righteousness of God in Jesus, then you don't need to shame others to make sure you're okay. You don't need to shame others because you trust in a righteousness that doesn't come from you, it comes from Jesus. Jesus who was crucified. Jesus who was crucified to bear your sins. The truth of the matter is, your sins are up in public already in the cross. There's no point hiding anymore. You're not better than anyone else. You needed Jesus to die for you just as much as anyone did. The game's up. You don't need to play it anymore. And right here are the spiritual resources to live a shame-free life. Humble and confident and full of love and compassion for others. Not needing to shame anyone. Well, what does that look like? Point three. See, it's very important to see that um, uh, what Paul is and isn't saying about Israel and their striving for the law. Uh, the goal of the law, the telos, the purpose of the law, which was achieved in Jesus Christ, was righteousness apart from the law. But that doesn't mean that there isn't obedience. You can see uh, pretty clearly, I think, in the final section of uh, chapter 10, verses 14 to 21, uh, this righteousness that's apart from the law is open uh, to everyone through faith or trust in Jesus. And Paul asks, well, how are they going to believe in one whom they have never heard? And, and then Paul goes on, um, well, ha have they heard? Verse 18, and, and his answer is quite a bit of a shock, actually. Yep, you bet they have. Oh, yeah, they've heard all right. But they've not believed. They've not trusted in their hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead, that he's the Messiah who has promised, the Lord of all. And so Paul concludes the chapter on this grim note, but of Israel, Isaiah says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Uh, we'll come back to more of that in next week, where chapter 11, when Paul sort of spells out what he means there. But for now, notice that the contrast is between faith and disobedience. Faith goes together with obedience. It's not just trust in Jesus and free for all. No, no, the, the fact that Israel strove for righteousness as if it were based on works instead of based on faith doesn't mean that obedience doesn't matter anymore. In fact, way back at the start of the letter, Paul says that the whole point of his ministry and what he's writing about is to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. What the righteousness of God does for us is to make obedience, true obedience from the heart, out of love, possible. Righteousness that comes from faith is a righteousness that changes people. It is the power to actually make shameful people righteous. And you see it again and again, um, um, Deuteronomy 30, with a passage that was quoted, uh, God says, obey the commandments of the Lord your God by loving the Lord your God. 
It's a love for God that leads to obedience. And I think Paul takes Deuteronomy 30 and applies it to Christ. So the righteousness that comes from faith, Paul writes, says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven that is to bring Christ down or who will descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it's on your lips, it's in your heart. He's near you. Jesus, the word of God, the righteous one, has drawn near to you. And so we don't have to go scrabbling around, we don't have to go up to heaven to go and find it, we don't don't have to go down to death to find it. He's come to us. He was at the Father's right hand for all eternity. And he came down. And he lived here in our world and he was subject to the same broken patterns of shame and shaming as you and I are. But he went further. He didn't come simply to experience shame, to empathise with us. He came to actually take our shame. He went all the way down into the abyss. He took your shame to the cross. There he was stripped and beaten and abused and ridiculed. He was publicly shamed in the most grotesque way possible. As the author of the letter to the Hebrews puts it, he despised the shame and endured the cross. And it was our shame yours and mine, that was held up in public at the cross. And as he died and went to hell, your shame went to hell with him. He took your shame, you see. That's what the righteousness of faith is all about. He took your shame so that you can have his righteousness. And what that means is that none of the things that you might be ashamed of define you anymore. That habit, that big mistake, those dark thoughts, they're dead. So even when others seek to shame you, even when you can't shake the shame, Jesus says to you, I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not ashamed of you. I was shamed for you. I've taken it. As you look to his cross and you hear him speak that word to your heart, your love for him will move you more and more to serve him and to please him. And dear sisters and brothers, this is the only ever way you'll ever live shame-free. Because no one who trusts in Jesus will be put to shame. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you with all our hearts that you came down, you went into the abyss for us and rose again in triumph. And that in doing that, you bore our shame to death. We trust you, we put our trust in you, we look to you, we live in you. We rest in you. You know us better than we know ourselves even, and we know enough about ourselves to know that there's some pretty dark stuff there. But we don't live in it, we live in you. 
And we pray that you would so fill our hearts with your righteousness that our lives will overflow with love for you and for everyone because no one who puts their trust in you will ever be put to shame. Amen. Please stand. We're going to sing of this gift of